Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan. Today we'll be covering the last seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio is Gavin Phipps, back from holiday, bright and chipper as ever. Good evening. Bright and chipper as ever. And also in studio with us today, uh, we've got Edward White of the News Lens. Edward, good to have you back. Good evening, Keith. And Ross Feingold of DC International Advisory. Ross, good to have you back as well. Thanks. Good evening. And we've got a first-timer today. Uh, we're going to have on the show Dr. Jason Nee, who is an assistant professor of at the City University of Hong Kong uh, with uh, expertise in all kinds of infrastructure, urban planning, uh, and most especially for our purposes today, uh, we'll be picking his brains about transportation. So, uh, Jason, really good to have you on the show for the first time. Yes, thanks. Good evening. On the show today, Japan stopped by this week for bilateral talks, uh, covered a bunch of interesting topics while they were here, but steered clear of the nuclear food issue, it being a nuclear issue and all. Then more news on the international front, a shipment of armored carriers bound for Singapore got intercepted by Chinese authorities in Hong Kong. Some see the incident as the uh, latest sign of deteriorating cross-strait ties. We'll explain how Taiwan fits into all that. In the second half, we'll give an update on the legislative fight over proposals to legalize gay marriage. And China made out big at Taiwan's top movie awards, The Golden Horses. We'll discuss uh, where Taiwan's domestic film industry is headed. But first, uh, we've got to talk about TransAsia, the disappearing airline. When the troubled airline imploded overnight last week, uh, the news sent shockwaves throughout Taiwan. And so the drama surrounding it has just kind of kept unfolding bit by bit, day by day. Uh, of course, in the original announcement, TransAsia management said the company was going to fold up and go away, no more flights, ceasing operations, the whole shebang. Uh, but this week, there was a glimmer of hope that the airline might be saved by a ragtag group of investors led by former Civil Aeronautics Administration Director General Billy Chang. Uh, he floated the possibility that he might buy the company up, uh, lots has happened since that original announcement, though. But, uh, Gavin, let's live in those happy days where we still had that glimmer of hope. How did this week start? Well, it started with Billy Jung, who's the former Civil Aeronautics Administration Director General. He came out on Tuesday of this week and said, Hey, I've been approached by a bunch of blokes from the high-tech sector who mm-hmm. are interested in taking over TransAsia Airways, to mm-hmm. which lots of people went, Woo! Other people went, Oh, I don't think so. Anyways, that lasted 24 hours. Because 24 hours later, Jung turned around and said, well, we're not really interested in buying the airline anymore. And the reason that he gave? The reason he gave was because basically its flight routes had been rescinded. Right. And his argument was if we take over, if this group, he didn't name any members of the group. He was very coy about that. In Mm -hmm. fact, his, his argument was if I name members of this syndicate that's interested in buying the airline, it could scuttle the deal prematurely. Mm hmm. Got to keep that air of mystery. Basically, that's what he he had, yes. Anyway, he basically said, well, we can't buy the airline now because you've got no flight routes. And if we, obviously, if we try to buy the airline, we'll be buying the airline without the flight routes, which means a lengthy process to reapply for the flight routes. That was his argument. Not much of an airline if you don't have any flight routes. That was his argument to start with. Mm -hmm. His argument then turned around to talks at the Taipei District Prosecutor's Office. 
because he was dragged in by prosecutors on Thursday. Whoa. Well, I know. Well, unfortunately, after he opened his mouth on Tuesday, TransAsia stocks, which of course have been in the toilet since the company announced its bankruptcy, suddenly shot up. They shot up to 3.76 NT dollars per share, which in fact mm-hmm. they was the maximum daily limit of 10% on one of the days. People were really excited that people, Billy was jumping into the game. People thought, way the shares have gone up. Unfortunately, the Taiwan Stock Exchange didn't think much of this and said, hang on a minute, something's amiss here. Hmm. And the prosecutor's office said, yes, something could be amiss here. After 50 million TransAsia shares were actually traded in the hours and day after he actually made the comment about the takeover. So the speculation there so being... Well, there's speculation he... that he might have made false claims in order to affect TransAsia's share price. Now, he says he didn't. He says he wanted to buy shares himself. That's his defense there. Yeah, and if you were going to buy shares, why would you want the price to go up? I, I'm leaving that one for the prosecutors to work out. But that's he's now being investigated for that. And while it's early days in the investigation, if he is found guilty of manipulating share prices by making false claims, he does stand to spend between three and ten years in the big house and a fine of $100 million. Yeah, well, if it was a scheme, it's uh, off to a pretty pretty great start. Ah, that was only part of what happened with TransAsia this week, though, of course, mm-hmm. because the other part of what happened this week was Transport Minister He Chen Dan confirmed that his office had rescinded all TransAsia Airways flight routes, obviously to do with Billy Jung's not wanting to buy the airline with the syndicate he was buying the airline with. Well, and also because somebody's got to have those routes if we're going to keep them going. Basically, yes, and the Ministry of Transport basically said, well, we've scrapped the routes and we're now going to divvy them up for in between um, six airlines here in Taiwan. I believe um, China Airlines is currently running these routes. They're going to do it till February. On a a temporary basis Mm -hmm. until February the 15th, yeah? Mm -hmm. But the other airlines, of course, are, well, like China Airlines, Mandarin Airlines, Ever Air, Uni Air, Far Eastern Air Transport, and Tiger Air. Mm -hmm. Now, they're going to have these, they're going to, Next week, apparently, they're going to talk with members, officials from the Civil Aviation Authority, and they're going to divvy up these routes. Mm-hmm. And this, they expect that this process to take two or three weeks before it's actually finalised, and then they'll all take over the new routes gradually from next year. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're interested, TransAsia Airways operated 25 cross-strait routes, 12 international routes, and six domestic routes before it went belly up. Mm. All right. So uh, it wasn't exactly a clean end that this uh, TransAsia came to. A bit of a messy thing. So we're going to turn things over to uh, Jason now, just to get a little bit of your perspective on uh, what what, what is happening in Taiwan's aviation industry. Of course, uh, Billy Chang also came out this week and said that, you know, we should expect more problems ahead for the industry. Maybe that was just sour grapes. Maybe uh, that was a very prescient statement and, and part of why he decided not to go through with the deal. Uh, what is what is your perspective? What, what what do you think is behind all of this strife and all this turmoil that we're seeing? Yes, thank you. Um, so, about this uh, this case, you know, uh, I do talk to the uh, you know MOTC and and also the uh, Tourism Bureau regarding of this. You know, a lot of people you know they are presuming this is actually because of the uh, the decrease, the dramatic decrease of the tourists from in China. Mm-hmm. But you know, I think this is like half true uh, because those. Uh, uh, TransAsia uh, airline by itself, they have some kind of internal internal uh, situation before it went bankrupt. Mm-hmm. And uh, regarding uh, Mr. Chang's, uh, uh, you know, the the talk, the announcement about you know take over the airline, and uh, they changed the mind, you know, all you know, all over a night. You know, I think mm-hmm. you know if you know the news, you know, you know uh, he said that's the chairman of the TransAsia 
you know, ask him to go out for the uh, the press conference and talk about this. Mm. So that's why uh, you know also a lot of people think about this as actually try to manipulate the stock market as well. Vincent Lin was actually questioned this week. Mm-hmm. He was the Trans Asia big bod. Right. He was dragged in as well and questioned over this possibly manipulating the share price. Yes, um, you know uh, this is actually applied to uh, you know, a much broader issue. You know about you know how. As you see, a lot of uh, Taiwanese big company, they are all the family business. So how they actually try to really move from the first generation and try to keep booming and keep growing in the second generation, that will be a much broader issue. You see this happening in Korea as well. Mm-hmm. You know, Samsung, this is all the family type of business. is a giant kind of uh, company. So uh, Taiwan's, um, um, you know, Traditionally, you know, it's uh, coming from those, you know, a couple of big names, big mm-hmm. families. Uh, it's not really easy to get them uh, to be um, really sort of like open or introduce, you know, those professional ma- managers or even get regulated mm-hmm. uh, by the uh, government. So um, we have to do this step by step. But, mm-hmm. you know, the first things we could do is, uh, you know, the um, uh, government should really keep an eye on that and uh you know those companies should really um keep things uh transparent to the people but you know i think you know in terms of airline you know this industry especially in taiwan you know um for uh you know this year and uh, it's a global you know economy downturn of those so uh when those uh, airline company they you know they i think they kind of like over purchase uh too many um big airplane Hmm. So they have, they they also set up the LCC. Mm-hmm. So when the LCC of the uh, Trans Asia you know uh, get closed down, there's al- al- already some kind of hint of this situation. So um, you know, so people think you know uh, the MOTC or the uh, you know Aviation Bureau should notice of this, and when they see their financial report, they should really kind of uh, notice this situation and start stepping. So that you know that's. Uh, so, so it sounds like based on what you're saying that maybe the failure here largely comes in the fact that regulators just weren't proactive enough in heading this off. Yeah, I would think so. I would think um, you know because we do monitor you know MOTC, you know we do have a mechanism really see this is actually quarterly. You know they have the kind of like a financial report you know of all the airline company and also you can see the number, you can see the tourist number and see how how they do uh, loading factor all this. So uh, it could be noticed. So. Um, um, but the situation is still happening, you know, so that's why a lot of people arguing, you know, sh- uh, the government should be more proactive, should be more involved in this type of things. In fact, to go to your question, Keith, you know, given that it's a listed company on the stock market, the airline subsidiary, that means there's two regulators looking at it, right? There's the financial regulator or the stock market itself. Uh, so that would be two, plus the Civil Aviation, uh, Civil Aviation Authority as the primary regulator of an airline. So now we have three different entities looking at it. Uh, and, and also, the the reality is that the airline has always been somewhat underinvested by the corporate group that uh, owns it, the, the Lin family from the Goldstone Group. Uh, the, the hope was always that cross straight flights would be the, the, the thing that made the airline super profitable um, for a variety of reasons. Despite having so many cross straight flight routes, they still haven't been able to make as much money as they anticipated they would. But the, the, it's no surprise that the airline is somewhat undercapitalized, you know, given that that's been the history of how the corporate group has operated Trans Asia.
Mm. Uh, and just for the non-business uh, savvy among us, when you say undercapitalized, reti- they just haven't invested as heavily in uh, creating a good, thriving airline as they should have? Uh, broadly, yes, but but more specifically, ensuring that there's enough capital cushion within the in the airline to get it through the tough times. It was sort of a similar problem to what Far, far Eastern Air Transport encountered multiple times, hmm. right? Somewhat underfunded uh, by the corporate interests that had, had control of the airline, waiting around for, for the big payday when, when cross-strait flights w- would happen, but eventually they still couldn't make a go of it uh, despite having cross-strait flight routes. So you know, airlines are kind of like banks. It, it's, a, it's a bit of a vanity thing to own for large corporates, right? People are very, oh, you own an airline. You know, kind of like Donald Trump, he wanted to own an airline. Uh, he didn't make money off of it 25, 30 years ago. Uh, but, but it's very much a vanity thing to own an airline or, or a bank for large corporate groups until it goes bad. Uh, Edward, yeah. I'd, I'd just add that at the moment, I think the two key, two key questions here is debt and then the branding of the company, the company's brand. Firstly, the reason the company folded when it did was that it had payments owing on its convertible bonds. It wasn't going to be able to meet those payments. Reason being that for the last two years, its passenger numbers have plummeted after a series of incidents and um, two terrible accidents that we know about. Right. We haven't even mentioned those yet today. How did we uh, get this far into the show without mentioning that? Yeah. The the point here now is, um, you know, with obvious respect to everyone that lost their lives and their families, is that after those events, passenger numbers dropped by 40%. Mm Mm-hmm. And the company has not been able to recover that. The load factor that Jason mentioned was one of the lowest in the, in the world. So that means that the number of paying customers on each flight is one of the worst performers in the world you know, mm-hmm. in, in terms of the airline industry. And this is an industry that struggles to make money. You know, even the best companies have really tough years and, and tough um, period, like long-term <laughs> financial periods. So given that they have the safety image, who is going to really keep the brand alive? And they, they owe a lot of money. So what happens now to, to that debt? They need to sell some assets and the sale process needs to happen fast because they have people that want their money back. Mm. All right. Well, uh, we are going to end that story out right there and move on to our next one. Uh, up next, a new story that bringing everybody together, Hong Kong, uh, Singapore, China, Taiwan, Everyone is mixed up in this one, uh, that being a shipment of nine armored carriers, uh, which I have seen called Terex Infantry Carriers. Uh, that's what I've seen it called. Uh, well, they were seized in Hong Kong by customs officials last week. Uh, so that's Hong Kong right there. They were headed to Singapore after being used by the Singaporean military for training exercises in Taiwan. So that's Singapore and Taiwan now in the mix. According to some reports, the seizure was prompted by a tip-off from a Chinese security agent... Uh, You know, basically saying you might want to take a look under those suspiciously shaped tarps over there. Uh, So that's the whole kit and caboodle. Hong Kong, Singapore, China, and Taiwan all mixed up together. Uh, There's actually nothing too unusual about the shipment itself. Uh, These are for training exercises that occur regularly in Taiwan. Uh, But what I guess is somewhat unusual uh, is transporting this military equipment commercially, which isn't usually the way that it's done. Uh, But Gavin, let's back up and uh, go over what's happened since these things were discovered. What's happened since they've been discovered? Well, a lot of people have jumped up and down and stamped their feet, and a lot of people have hidden in corners. Mm -hmm. The the Singaporeans have have appeared to have hidden in a corner somewhere, while the Chinese have jumped up and down and stamped their feet. The the actual, the nine armoured Terex armoured personnel carriers 
were actually being transported on a ship that left from Kaohsiung, actually, and it was en route to Singapore. But, of course, the multi-million dollar question is, did they not realise it was going to dock in Hong Kong? Seems like a little bit of forethought it should have been put. Like someone should have probably looked at the shipping manifest and gone, hang on a minute, we shouldn't really put these things on this boat because it's going to dock in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. I think Ross has a lot to say about this because we were talking about it the other day. Well, there's several aspects to, to the point you just made, Gavin. One, if it was going to go through Hong Kong, then they should have filed the proper paperwork. So at, at a minimum, the Hong Kong authorities have a very legitimate argument for stopping the goods because if you are bringing these kinds of goods through Hong Kong, you have to file certain paperwork. And the shipper simply didn't do it. So if they were hoping that the the boat wouldn't be inspected, uh, that dock wouldn't be inspected that day, etc., they were having a a very cavalier attitude towards compliance with Hong Kong's requirements. And and that's inexcusable. But beyond that... They did did put a tarp over them. So, you know... Well, that's not the same as filing the required paperwork, though, right? So so actually, Singapore, as, as the customer which engaged the ship, Shipper should have also had an expectation that the shipper would comply with all applicable regulations wherever the boat was going to be docking, uh, no matter how briefly. Mm -hmm. Uh, But but beyond that, there's sort of the common sense question here is why was why was this equipment being sent back to Singapore via? Uh, a route that required stopping in another port, right? That um, just seems very foolish. And if someone made the decision, well, we'll just go for the cheap bidder, and it just happens to be a bidder who, who said, yeah, we'll take this contract for, for a cheap price, but our, our ship is going to stop somewhere along the way. That's pretty foolish. And whether that the Singapore side or the Taiwan side, because even the Taiwan side are not the shipper here, it's the Singapore government, but the Taiwan side probably should have said to the Singapore side, hey, do you guys really think this is a good idea to be shipping it through a third? You know, they could all, it, this could jeopardize the whole relationship. I mean, didn't that that occur to the what Taiwan side? What could go wrong? I do what have a quote here, wrong? actually. I've got a couple of quotes here. Kaohsiung customs officials have been quoted as saying that the shipment of Singaporean military gear and vehicles was being legally transported to the city-state. Mm-hmm. There you go. I've got the Singaporean Defence Ministry saying it is customary for Singapore to use commercial shipping to transport its non-sensitive military equipment to and from overseas training missions. However, this is the first time that any equipment has been seized. Hmm. The statement from Singapore went on to say that many other countries also transport non-sensitive, unarmed military gear abroad commercial vessels because mm-hmm. it is cost-effective. Let's yes, but usually, it. sorry, but yet usually you would file the required paperwork, though, right? Fair enough. Let's uh, let's actually kind of back away from this uh, paperwork question and uh, look at the uh, Im- implications for cross-strait relations a little bit. The Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs actually did come out uh, and told a news conference in Beijing that China was opposed to nations with which it has diplomatic ties of having any form of official exchanges with Taiwan. So this brings up something that we uh, haven't really talked about on the show before, which is the military exchanges between Taiwan and Singapore, which this incident highlighted in all of the uh, wrongest sorts of ways. Oh, no. Actually... It got highlighted in a wrong sort of way about eight, nine years ago. Oh, yeah? When an aeroplane, a Taiwan Air Force trainer, crashed into a bunch of Singaporean troops on a military exercise. Oh, that's all the wrong ways. Yeah, yeah that was slightly the wrong way. Yeah, which, is, which was not the first time there was a training accident, accident. that resulted in the death of, of a Singaporean training this here, was here in Taiwan. a large one. Though. Yes, because there was a fireball of a, yeah. a, a military aircraft cra- crashing into a, a barracks. Uh, but, but the fact that the training goes on is, is not a secret. It's not a secret that China dislikes it intensively, but it, it, it continues partly because of uh, the strong personal relationship that Lee Kuan Yew had with uh, Chang Jing Guo and you know, committed to continue this training. 
Uh, Lee Kuan Yew has now departed, uh, but his son has continued that commitment. But over time, everybody knew that over time this would probably uh, decrease in frequency or in scope. And now China has that much more leverage to put on Singapore to stop it. And if it does stop, it, ultimately it's just bad for Taiwan, right? It's going to be bad for Taiwan's military to lose the chance to uh, train together with a foreign military. Because China has long been pushing Singapore to train in Hainan Island. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, uh, the reason that they don't do that is because the U.S. is opposed to it because, of course, Singapore has a lot of U.S. equipment. And there's concerns that if uh, Singapore was using that equipment in Chinese territory, you know, it wouldn't be so secret uh, anymore. The other question, I guess, is whether China can use this to um, help with its leverage over Singapore and the South China Sea issue. Um, obviously, China's strategy there has been to try and engage countries bilaterally and any um, leverage that it may have. And, and these issues come up and they highlight the sensitivity um, that, that is associated with the South China Sea. So if, if China can take this issue and try to pressure Singapore not just to lessen its engagement with Taiwan over the cross-strait problem, but to actually um, help make Singapore support its aims in the South China Sea. Mm. Well, that's already been percolating all summer because after the arbitration award was announced, Singapore kind of on its own, maybe with Vietnam and and the Philippines, not anymore because the new president of the Philippines went in a different direction. Uh, But Singapore was very outspoken in saying China should support the rule of law, arbitration decisions, etc. And China got really angry. Mm. And ever since then, over the last three, four months, Singapore has been trying to patch up the relationship with China. And then this incident happens. So as we've been discussing, it it is great leverage uh, that China now has over Singapore. And ultimately, this will be to Taiwan's detriment. Mm. Yes. Uh, Jason, you're, uh, you're based in Hong Kong these days, uh, being an associate professor over there. Uh, wh- wh- what's the view from Hong Kong? You know, I have two involvement of this case. First of all, I'm based in Hong Kong. Second, I was in the military of Taiwan, and we mm-hmm. did train, train with the uh, military from uh, Singapore. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, this become very sensitive uh, things, and it's definitely also related to a cross-strait relationship between China versus current DPP department, uh, government. You know, uh, the overall, the uh, you know, these things didn't make too much news in the uh, in Hong Kong. You know, this is just a very short uh, statement about you know this uh, case and uh, you know announcing from mainland China uh, about you know not really not really they use the word allowed mm. the, you know any kind of military kind of um, things in between uh, Singapore and uh, and Taiwan. You know. Um, you know, I would say, uh, I would see this type of things is going to be more and more stronger uh, in the next couple of years. You know, uh, what I mean is, you know, how the Beijing's uh, point of view to uh, uh, to Taiwan, you know... Um, using so, whatever leverage it has. Yes, using every, you know, whatever, you know, in a diplomat way or in you know, other type of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, uh, the impact or the influence to uh, Taiwan uh, for this case, it would be a sort of... Uh, uh, um, a bad case of the current DPP dep- uh, government about their overall policy of going south. Mm-hmm. You know, the, Singapore is definitely a very big supporter and big friend uh, of Taiwanese government. And military exchange is one of the things having run in the past so many years. So obviously, you know, Beijing government, they know this, but uh, they started doing this type of things so that will be uh, a kind of symbol uh, for them to, you know, really start to interfere this type of, uh, you know, uh, things in between uh, Taiwan and Singapore. 
All right. Well, uh, we'll have to leave that story on that note, of course. Uh, touches on a lot of sensitive issues, but we're going to move on to a story that also touches on a lot of sensitive issues. Uh, remember tourism? We used to talk about this a lot on the show, probably two or three months ago. Lots of concerns over the flagging tourism industry, as many uh, saw dropping numbers coming over here from mainland China, following numbers of Chinese tourists. Uh, many blame that dropping number on worsening cross-strait ties. Uh, well, to kind of head off the decline and help out the industry, Taiwan's government made a decision. They decided to pump in 300 million NT to fund and to subsidize the tourism sector. Uh, kind of, you know, just give a shot in the arm. Help it out. You know, you're losing a little money over here. We'll give you a shot in the arm. Hopefully you can pull through. But the money didn't quite get used the way they were hoping it to be used. Uh, Ross, you brought this story to my attention. Maybe you could fill us in on what happened here. Well, as you said, the the government thought by offering a subsidy to the tourism industry, it would help alleviate some of their financial pressure. And frankly, probably uh, another driver of this was just to not have tour operators and tour guides protesting in front of government offices about a decrease in, in tourist arrivals and, and their income. But the, the subsidy has been used in ways that the government uh, did not anticipate based on the law of unintended consequences. And now the government has rapidly had to cancel the subsidy program. And that consequence is? I think we should defer to our, our tourism expert, uh, Professor, Professor Nee. All right. So you need to teach us a new term. Uh, I think it's something along the lines of zero... Zero yes. cost, uh, zero, zero cost tourism group, something like that. You know, those zero cost or low cost tourism group is uh, is not a really uh, a new new things. It's happening a lot in uh, Hong Kong, Macau, Thailand. You know, um, you, and could you define it for us? You know, the, you know that thing is uh, you basically the travel agent. They didn't really make the money, and. Um, the money they make is completely not from the uh, people really participating in the tourist group. They bring you to the shopping area and they get mm. commis- commission and uh, uh, you know based on how uh, the people really spend over there is much much more than uh, you know than the, uh, the the fee of the people participating in the group. That's also that's always happening in certain place like uh, especially Hong Kong Macau because they do have the luxurious good place for people uh, for those tourism uh, or travel agent to bring the uh, tourists in mm-hmm. and uh, there there was a need from mainland uh, to go to Hong Kong and Macau mm-hmm. to purchase several specific items milk powders Rolex cardiac those uh, Louis Vuitton so uh, so which, shopping was the trip for them yes yeah, yeah ch- shopping was the purpose mm-hmm. of the trip and this is actually officially announced mm-hmm. by the study uh, of how and why men and Chinese come to Hong Kong. They come to Hong Kong for shop for specific you know, items. Mm-hmm. You know, mostly it's luxurious good. Something they cannot purchase or they don't believe this is genuine when they really go to shop in mainland China. Mm. You know, Taiwan, I saw a smirk from Gavin there. Anyway, sorry, go yeah. on. Yeah, ta- you know, Taiwan has certain type of attraction as well. But you know, uh, Taiwan, we are not that much, you know, you know, related to uh, you know, many Chinese, uh, many Chinese tourists' idea about the, the high-end good and, and something. But we do have cer- certain specific items. Mm. You know, like you go to Alishan, you go to uh, the the moon, uh, the moon lake, 
you know, they have certain specific items, jade, you know, any kind of things. You know, uh, made in Taiwan is kind of promise of the quality. Mm-hmm. So there, there could be a raise of the price, you know, to uh, sell to people specifically from in China. So when that happens, you know, the travel agent they don't really care about you know they could give you free. Mm-hmm. You could come to Hong Kong, you come to Hong Taiwan for almost like free. Right. Then, so, uh, but but what's happening here is when the government gave the subsidy to local tour operators, local tour operator then went to a say a group of retired persons, uh, somehow social organization in, in Kaohsiung or Pingdong and said, hey, would you like a free trip to Taipei for some shopping? And that's basically how the subsidy has been used. So people get a free trip to come to Taipei. All right, we're talking domestic, right? Yeah. Right. So, so the tour operators are then going to people locally here in Taiwan and saying, hey, we can give you a free trip up to Taipei. And then they take them shopping in Taipei. So maybe maybe you could unpack for us why this is considered uh, a policy failure. I mean, if if it's uh, spurring more shopping in the areas that we were worried about, uh, what, what's the problem here? You know, the you know, th- so basically, uh, the the tourism bureau. Uh, you know, now the idea is because definitely, obviously, we are losing uh, people from mainland China. So um, going Southeast Asia is not that easy, and bringing people to fill in the gap. So. We try to, you know, really encourage, you know, people travel within, you know, uh, Taiwan, by having, you know, the, um, you know, some sort of like a flat, you know, uh, funding or subsidy to everyone. It may not be a, a very good way. Just like Ross said, Ross said, you know, uh, you come from, um, you know, south part of Taip- you know, Taiwan. They uh, come to Taipei. You know, th- there's no n- that much need. For this type of subsidy, or look at it another way: if, if Gavin uh, operated a store selling jade, or, or operated a restaurant, he's basically going to have a deal with a tour agency that's going to bring him a busload of, of tourists from southern Taiwan, and it's been subsidized by the government to deliver the tourists to Gavin's restaurant. Uh, it, it's this is not the role; should not be the role of government. Sorry, Gavin. <laughs> What always threw me as soon as when when these travel agents took to the streets all those weeks ago, and the government turned around three days later and said we're going to offer subsidies, it, I knew this was going to end up in the toilet because me and friends of mine knew that half the people that were taken to the streets, half of them worked for very dubious travel agencies in the first place, others worked for travel agencies that had backing from China and Hong Kong, and their sole purpose was to bring people from China and Hong Kong here. And how the government didn't know this, I find absolutely staggering. I think they just wanted the people to get off the streets. Uh, Ross said, yeah, yeah, true. Well, well why, why was the program, you know, first of all, why such a large amount of money, uh, relatively speaking, in a relatively fast amount of time was appropriated for this subsidy? And it just wasn't, doesn't seem to have been thought out very well. I mean, why wasn't the money spent, again, this goes more to Jason's expertise, why wasn't that money spent on tourism promotion in Southeast Asia to, or Korea or Japan to try and bring more tourists into Taiwan, tourists who are going to do what we tend to think of as as better tourism, right? They, they are going to go to the sites. They are staying in hotels, uh, things like that. And, and money will be spread around in the course of their spending as opposed to subsidizing, bringing a busload of, of domestic tourists for a day shopping trip or eating trip from Kaohsiung to Taipei. Hey, if they're supporting Gavin's local business, I'm all for that. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with my restaurant. Sorry, go, go, go ahead, Jason. You know, uh, yes, um, I want to share with you know, everyone is, uh, you know, in the MOTC, Ministry of Transportation and Communication, uh, you know, Tourism Bureau is under MOTC. That's the most wealthy you know, agency 
in the uh, this uh, ministry. Uh, we do have some sort of like a promotion fund, uh, a large fund uh, promoting uh, tourism. You know, uh, my short answer to Ross is uh, promoting a busloaded uh, people from Kaohsiung to Taipei or vice versa. The reason is, is this is obvious. This is uh, could be seen, and it will happen very soon. Uh, you know, you you see this is happening. You know, getting people on the road, and uh, it could make a news. And uh, at the beginning, they don't really expect there will be a really sort of uh, indirectly subsidized, you know, those zero zero cost uh, tourist group. Hmm. That is that is something MOTC didn't think about that. So when they notice that, they you know cut it down, and uh, they don't you know, so they try to uh, you know take it back. But um, you know, I want to say uh, one thing is in those tourism uh, issues, um, the problem of uh, Taiwan. And similar to Hong Kong and Macau, is not really generating the uh, the demand. The demand is uh, could be generated, but it won't be happen overnight. You know, some of the more fund more the uh, profound issue of these things is how to distribute equally the uh, benefit of people in this industry. We have uh, in the past couple of years, we do have a lot of people get getting much much wealthier when they really only focus on. Men and Chinese, so you become men and Chinese luxurious oriented tourism. We have just have very very few people, you know, sharing this uh, benefit or profit out of this. So uh, that's why when the DPP uh, government comes out, they try to deal with that issue because that will become a social equity issue. There will be, of course, cost straight, but people taking care of that. Not to mention some of those people. You know, dealing with you know doing this business, and they are mainly Chinese. They are not even they are not even Taiwan. Mm-hmm. So that's why that would become a government, a central government issue dealing with that. Mm. I, I guess the saga kind of reflects the fact that what what goes wrong when you have a, a knee jerk reaction to perhaps a problem that was never there in the first place. And what the sh- um, f- firstly also um, credit to the government for walking away from the policy really quickly in a matter of weeks which is pretty rare for government but well they've only they've only cut the subsidy for one company so far as far as i know so the rest is under consideration <laughs> have they not also said that they're going to investigate they're going to investigate yes yeah. they're going to investigate so that, that's something <laughs> but, I, I, but I, <laughs> <laughs> I think i think they're going to form a committee too okay <laughs> well well I, well i guess the, the, the ongoing question for the for the government here though is that if they're going to have these knee-jerk reactions every time a um, a lobby group or mm-hmm. a group of protesters um, takes up pickets outside the executive UN or the mm-hmm. legislative UN. And are they going to constantly react like this with policies, as Ross said, that aren't well thought through? Mm-hmm. And look, this is what happens <laughs> when when you do that. I'll you want you. to set up a travel company and see if you can get some money. That's I, I I hear there's some good business there. Maybe we can get some of those subsidies. We'll, 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 we'll keep him. We'll, we'll, we'll sign up on paper for your trip. Uh-huh. Okay, there we go. <laughs> uh, it's unfortunate though if the motivator uh, was as Jason described it. Well, get those people into a tour bus so, because it's highly visible. You'll see them on the highway. You'll see them getting off the tour bus in front of uh, Gavin's restaurant, to use our earlier example. And that, that, that's an unfortunate motivator for wasting the taxpayers' money mm. and really does reflect a poorly thought-out policy. Well, it would also mean that uh, Beijing was successful in politicizing this issue. 
you know, uh, your know, encore, uh, what Ross said, you know, uh, you know, take a look. Who are the people protesting? I believe in September or you know, or uh, October. Who are the people really get on the street? Is uh, the first uh, you know is are there the people uh, you know you know in the bus and tourist bus industry, right? So um, this kind of fund, obviously, the, you know, from my point of view, is uh, has two function. One is it's obvious put people on the you know on the the street. Second is indirectly subsidize the bus business. Mm-hmm. You're running from Kaohsiung, Taipei. I have a lot of friends in this type of business. Mm-hmm. You know, um, previously they only focus on mainland Chinese. The reason they expanding their fleet is all because the mainland Chinese, mm-hmm. and uh, they are not really paying off. You know, some of the those they are kind of still in the installment, so um, they rely on that type of things. So this type of uh, subsidy is sort of like uh, indirectly taking care of those uh, people in the uh, bus business. Mm. So, you know, uh, DPP government is nowadays, you, you see from the past six months, you know, whoever get on the street, they will mm-hmm. get something. Mm. And But this is actually generating more and mm-hmm. more this type of uh, protest and, what, yeah, and whatever. Mm. If Gavin gives me a ride home from work, can we call it a bus company and get some subsidies? <laughs> Sign up on paper, though, yeah? There we go. All right, we're going to have to round that one out there because we are coming up on a break now. When we return, representatives from Taiwan and Japan met up this week. We'll discuss their discussions. Then we'll give an update on the latest over the gay marriage legalization controversy. And we'll round things out with a look at the glitz and the glamour of the Golden Horse Awards. Taiwan's premier movie awards ceremony, which uh, took place last Saturday. All that and more when we return to Taiwan This Week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Gavin Phipps, Ross Feingold, Edward White, and Jason Nee. It's a uh, full house today, but uh, let's just get back into the topics because we got a whole bunch more. Up next, boring bilateral talks. Boring bilateral talks, that is, between Japan and Taiwan that wrapped up in Taipei on Wednesday. Of course, these talks are always boring. Just a bunch of... Fuddy-duddies talking alone in a room, but this time around, they were made even more boring by the fact that they didn't even talk about the one topic people actually care about. That being whether or not Taiwan will or will not open its borders to food imports from Japanese areas affected by the 2011 Fukushima nuclear disaster. So, as Cho Yi-jun, president of Taiwan's Association of East Asian Relations, and his Japanese counterpart met up uh, a group of demonstrators concerned about food safety actually formed outside of the proceedings. Uh, they were basically just trying to call attention to their opposition, to their concerns about the issue. But the issue apparently was not discussed, is what we're hearing uh, from the Taiwan side of the talks. Uh, instead, Gavin, how about you tell us what they did discuss? Yeah, these were the annual trade and economic talks between Taiwan and Japan. They were held in Taipei on Tuesday and Wednesday of this week. Now, they didn't discuss radioactive food. They instead discussed signing two cooperation memorandums on product safety and language education. That's the memorandums they signed. They also discussed the possibility of signing a trade accord, a trade and economic accord, basically a bigger one. 
All right. So those are two issues that I don't think uh, people would get up and protest about. Now, they protested, like you said, about the importation of Japanese food products from areas affected by the 2011 Fukushima nuclear disaster. And what happened here was a member, the head of the Japanese delegation, whose name I'm going to crucify here, but we'll have a go anyway, Mitsui Oashi. Mm. I believe that's his name. We just lost our entire Japanese listenership. That's I okay. apologize for that Sorry, one. Guys. I apologize for that one. Anyway, but he came out actually the first day of the talks and he actually said he hopes Taiwan will lift the five year ban on the importation of foodstuffs from the radiation affected areas. This led to a bit of a problem because then mm. everyone thought, oh, they're going to talk about it. Oh, they're going to talk mm-hmm. about it. The government said, no, we're not going to talk about it. This didn't subdue things because people kept jumping up and down going, are they going to talk about it? They're going to talk about it. The government yet again said, no, we're not going to talk about it. <laughs> Sadly, the other Yes, people, you are. No, we're not. No, we're not. It was the yes, we are. No, we're not. Went on for about 48 hours. And then basically the National Security Council head yesterday, Joseph Wu, came out and said, no, we didn't talk about it. And we're going to continue our ban on foods from these areas. That didn't stop KMT Vice Chairman How Long Bing, however, from coming out and saying, we're going to have a referendum on this. Or he wants a referendum on this. That's what he's calling for. He wants a referendum called the food for... He actually accused the DPP of pursuing a food for peace diplomacy move with Japan, Mm. saying that the DPP government is opting to allow this food in because it wants support from Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Right. Let's uh, let's dig down on that point uh, just for a second. So uh, on the Taiwan side, the reason why they might want to start uh, importing from these uh, areas in Japan is that's actually been a sticking point in uh, bilateral talks. Uh, and Taiwan actually wants to export uh, some of its fruits to Japan, and it can't do that until they start playing nice together. And so, you know, gumming up all of these works is Taiwan's continued ban of the foods from those regions, uh, which obviously goes back a number of years and was exacerbated last year with the whole mislabeling uh, issue where, you know, uh, well, we discussed this on the show last week, so we don't need to go into it into too much detail. But anyway, it it blew up as a controversy last year, and we're still dealing with it now. And it looks like there's just no faith on the part of the Taiwanese people that uh, the government is going to handle this uh, in a way that actually protects food safety. Okay, that was a long preamble. Uh, Ross, you looked like you were about to jump in. Well, the broader question here is, is not only how the government is handling food safety issues, but also how how it's handling relationship with Japan, what what it wants to achieve in relationships, in its relationship with Japan, and actually what is achievable, right? What it wants and what is actually achievable are two very different things. And I, I think the government is struggling with that right now. Uh, Japan, just like most other countries in Asia, has to carefully calibrate its relationship with Taiwan in the current environment where Taiwan's relationship with China is poor. And and to expect Japan or Korea or, frankly, the ASEAN members to recalibrate their relations in a way that moves them somewhat closer to Taiwan, whether it's on trade issues or people-to-people exchanges – or let alone security issues, is really unlikely in the current environment. So the the DPP might have a lot of hopes for its relationship with Japan, but the reality, I think, is going to be very, very challenging. And and we we see that, right? Japan does bring a lot of leverage to these economic discussions. Uh, But uh, I don't think we need to have a referendum on this. I I, I think a a better PR strategy from the KMT would be to say, 
Let it in. Who wants to eat this stuff? Right? President Tsai wants to endorse it as being healthy. Uh, that's up to her, but the public is smarter than that. I think that would be a more rational approach and not waste resources that, that pursuing a, a referendum would just ensure that there's proper labeling. And we could put a radioactive danger sticker on the food, right? Mm. And, and be done with it. Radioactive brand. The government has repeatedly said it has no plans to import this food. Unfortunately, I believe in August of this year, one government report was leaked saying they have a two-phase two policy on the table mm-hmm. to do it. Mm-hmm. And the two-phase mm-hmm. policy was basically certain foodstuffs will get let in during the first phase and other foodstuffs could be let in if they're proven safe. Just, but that, that never went anywhere. Just to be totally fair, though, uh, at this point, my understanding is that Taiwan and China are the only countries in the world that aren't allowing uh, food in from these regions of Japan. So it's not... It's not like a clear-cut thing that there is necessarily a danger. In fact, I think that uh, a, 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 a consumer rights advocacy group uh, from Taiwan actually went over to Japan and collected some samples from the region, uh, and they did find some radioactivity in the sample, but uh, it was actually below the legal limit. So, Well, that makes it analogous to the U.S. pork issue as well, right? And we could also say, uh, let the pork in and... and, and Political leaders should just say, who'd want to eat this stuff? It's got chemicals in it. Our Taiwan pork is so much better. So take Mm. the same approach with the Japanese uh, produce that might come from the radioactive affected area. Uh, But as you pointed out, from the Japan side, it's leverage. And and they're not going to proceed with any further uh, trade agreements or or deepening trade ties, or let alone security ties, if Taiwan continues to have uh, this prohibition. So that brings us back to what could the DPP government achieve out of the relationship with Japan if Japan is saying, no, you, you got to move on this. Otherwise, we're not moving on anything else. You know, I just want to share, um, you know, something uh, beyond this level of the issues. Um, you know, when DPP win the election, you know, hugely and dramatically this year, one of the biggest promote, biggest political promise is anti-nuclear, or maybe not anti, is to put a lot of caution you know, about the nuclear uh, power plant. So um, a lot of people, uh, you know, the dialogue is in, uh, you know, basically uh, we understand the DPP uh, government is very much, you know, uh, sort of like anti-nuclear type of uh, government. And nowadays uh, they start to think about to uh, even import the uh, uh, those type of, uh, you know, things from uh, Japan. That's the things, uh, one of the point people talk about. So, uh, but, you know, on the other hand, it's uh, also uh, related to, uh, as for today, you know, the, you know, DPP and the man in China's uh, relationship is very poor. So obviously they really want to strengthen the, uh, you know, the, uh, the tie in between uh, Taiwan and Japan. So that will be another international fact for this uh, things to be, to be happening. So how to really make uh, a judgment in between this uh, several um, you know status? It's uh, really sort of like an art for the current uh, government. Mm. Uh, Edward, closing thoughts on this one? Oh, just very quickly, I would have a major concern if um, politicians were getting their fingers involved in what should be an issue for the food re- food safety regulator in Taiwan, and. This issue, you know, if the Taiwanese food safety regulator wants to hold, um, have it some sort of different standard than the international norm over this issue, then that's its want. But um, the, for the politicians to be involved and make this um, 
something that they think that they can control, I think, is would be a huge mistake. But so, not notwithstanding the food safety issue, um, just to move to the the trade issue between Japan and Taiwan, I think this is particularly important. The post-Trump world, well, the the Trump world that we live in, the post-election world, that the we current live in, Trump world yeah, that we live in, is. Um, you know the the trade and specific partnership is off the table japan has um and, and japan and taiwan have a extremely close and important trade relationship there i think japan is taiwan's second biggest trading partner and, and taiwan is japan's fifth biggest so the relationship relationship is hugely important they need to both countries need to figure out ways to get more out of that relationship and the way that this uh these talks were reported at least was that the PR around it was awful the the two um, leading negotiators didn't meet the press afterwards they didn't obviously present a united front that there's going to be any sort of uh, warming of ties and I think that's a, um, a pretty poor way to, to end these talks you know one would have thought that at least some sort of movement to more frequent talks more uh, closer cooperation would have at least been a, a move in the right direction because of course the t- these talks were cancelled last year mm-hmm. due to the fruit and vegetable issue. Right, with the the, the labelling issue where uh, right, things it, were getting yeah, mislabeled yeah, from the wrong areas. Yeah. And the yeah. interesting point, point about that is, uh, going back to the broader context of Taiwan Japan relations, is also a lot of fishery and maritime issues. And Taiwan, the new government, cancelled proposed maritime talks several times until they were only hold, held recently. And, and again, not much came out of it because Japan has more leverage right now on these issues. Uh, it was all wrapped up into the, I would say, into the future of bilateral relations, but the leverage does seem to be with Japan. Hmm. All right. Well, we haven't had a ton of good news today, <laughs> uh, but we are going to move on to our last story, see if we can bump the trend. Last up, lights, camera, factionalism. Uh, the 53rd Golden Horse Awards went off with a bang over the weekend and some controversy for the Chinese Language Film Awards. Uh, Gavin, uh, how about you lay down for us what exactly some of the results were there? Yeah, Chinese movies came out on top on the Golden Horse Awards this year, apparently, because they won the Best Feature Film, the Best Director, and the Best Actor Award. They mm-hmm. also bagged two Best Actress Awards. There you go. Two Best Actors Which led awards. to a lot of um, controversy. I can't see why. I mean, British actors win the US Academy Awards, but apparently if Chinese movies win Golden Horse Awards, people here don't like it. Yeah, there so was a lot of... Is, and then, of course, the questions are, what's happened to Taiwan's once booming film industry? Right. Well, or I would say another important question here is, is, is this award and also the, the very similar music award for Mandarin-speaking award that, that's hosted here in Taiwan, is this meant to be an event for Taiwan's industry, no matter well, how big or small? Or to, is it meant to be an international event for the entire Mandarin language have, well, film industry? You have to remember that the Golden Horse Awards were, were still are considered, they were considered bigger ones before, but they, they still are considered the the top Mandarin-speaking movie awards mm-hmm. in the Asia, in the world, basically, yeah? Mm. Now, the Golden Melody Awards, which are the music ones you're talking about, they were once considered to be the top Mandarin music awards in the world. They have since dissipated somewhat in their meaning and urgency over the years. Well, why is it the responsibility of, of the stakeholders in Taiwan to host an award for the global Mandarin film industry? I mean, why don't why don't we just make a break and say, you know what, going forward, this is an award for product made in Taiwan. And, and then we would avoid this controversy that we're talking about. Well, that's rather bigoted, isn't it? Why? Because you're, you're not letting anyone else in, are you? You could set production requirements and that would encourage people to make movies here. I think it's very reasonable to say, no, we're going to give awards for movies that are made here. A lot of awards are structured that way around the world. 
in the film industry? Well, it certainly wouldn't do too much for cross-strait ties if they made that move. Uh, Of course, uh, commenting on the controversy, the Golden Horse Festival jury head Anne Hui uh, said that they didn't even really notice that it was the awards were kind of tipping in China's favor. They just made the decision one by one, and when it was all over, they like they realized, oh, it's a lot of a uh, lot of lot of Chinese awards there. Of course, it's not the first time Chinese movies have run away with the awards at the Golden Horse Awards because they've done it in the past, and the same controversy has arisen basically yeah. in the past. Of course, a good mate of yours is of course Jay Cho, of course. Jason, <laughs> Jason. Yeah, you know. Uh, now you're acting all demure about it. <laughs> you know, you know, you know, Golden Horse. It's uh, you know, uh, I, I hear about you know a lot of you talk about Golden Melody, Golden Horse. You know, no matter what have um, Golden whatever. But you know, you know, the the, the Golden Horse uh, you know award. It's uh, some sort of the award uh, with the history. So this type of things was was actually originally initiated by the uh, Taiwanese government. So that uh, that's way before the uh, similar situ- you know, award happening in mainland China, and, and and also Hong Kong. So that's why that you know this specific award established the status for all the people in the filming uh, business. You know, um, you talk about Jay Chow or other people's. You know, uh, we could think about other ways in commercial world. You know, Taiwan's artists still performing very, very well in uh, mainland China. You know, um, from a more broader point of view, you know, uh, for people dealing with uh, you know music or film, any kind of artist, I believe Taiwan still has its uh, sort of um, um, status in this uh, industry or in this field because this is a culture thing. You know, um, it, it takes time. You know, you cannot really make uh, something uh, over time. Uh, you, you know, it depends on what type of movie you're making on. You know, you, if you're doing you know, Transformer or kind of like a Pixar, that type of things. Yeah, it could be, uh, you know, uh, it's a technology uh, things. But uh, for other type of things, uh, specifically things you know, with the culture, Taiwan still have this uh, advantage on that mm. thing. Mm. Yeah. The other way, I guess, to look at this is that in a, in a positive sense, um, it's an example of some sort of form of uh, cross-strait relations happening. Chinese artists and movie stars were allowed to come to Taiwan and pick up awards and participate in a, a ceremony or an award ceremony that involves the whole Mandarin-speaking world. And that, if you were thinking about this the other way around, there's not much chance of Taiwanese artists being able to go to China and, and do the same thing exactly. or partake in the same way. So in that sense, it's a, a good reflection on Taiwan's openness to, to yes. being engaged with China. There we go. I knew we would find a, a positive way to end things. Yeah, that's a, that's a nice rousing note. I actually, uh, well, we were going to cover the fight over gay marriage today, but we're basically running out of time. How about, uh, Gavin, let's just get the latest on this. Uh, the fight over legalizing gay marriage... Uh, is taking a very winding, weaving, torturous path through the legislative process. Uh, the big news this week uh, is uh, there was a bit of a break in the DPP ranks. Uh, Ke Ming uh, is now proposing a special same-sex marriage law rather than uh, specifically amending the civil code itself. We don't really have time to get into that too much in detail. We've kind of discussed it before on the show. But, Gavin, how about you just give us the dates that we need to be looking out for uh, as we follow the issue? I'll give you a quick 30-second rundown. Well, earlier this week, 10,000 activists 
went and protested outside the legislative view and again they had a sit-in when they were de- when the lawmakers were debating the bill after that the dpp's legislative caucus whip ker Ming came out and said well we're probably not going to take any action on this until the next legislative session which is in april of next year at the earliest but the um, revisions to the civil code which could pave the way for the legalization of same-sex marriage will be reviewed again on december the 26th but no final conclusion is going to be come out on that date and another interesting thing a survey by the taiwanese public opinion foundation found that 46.3 percent of residents said they support same-sex marriage while 45.4% expressed opposition to such a move, showing that the it's quite close. You know, there's mm-hmm. no general consensus on the matter yet. We're going to have to end out the broadcast portion of our show there today and move into the podcast bonus story. Uh, and a lot of our commentators don't even know what the podcast bonus story is going to be today. So, Gavin, why don't you lay it on us? This is a surprise podcast bonus. They're all high schoolers. You what, you've graduated. You want to have a party. Where do you have a party? Where would you think the perfect place to have a party? It's clean. Oh, when I was uh, in high school a million years ago, Gavin... Um, when we went to have a party, we would look for someone whose parents had gone away and have it at no, the house. you're out. Get out. Edward, where do you want a party? This is a school leaving party? High school. Just a party. High schoolers <laughs> get together. Don't overthink this. Uh, I'm with Ross, yeah. Just whoever's Somebody's parents house. aren't home. Where, would you, where, would you, where, where would you have a party? People's house, club, all those stuff. You see, there's uh, where you're wrong, because that's not the hip place to party anymore. It's not clean enough. Mm. If you make a mess, what happens? You've got to clear it up. Then, of course, the parents come home, give you a chewing out. You're not allowed out again, are you? Have, no. Haven't you ever seen one of these Hollywood movies about this kind of thing, Gavin? Well, well, I forgot. You don't go to the movies. Well, you none made of those, that clear earlier. <laughs> none of those movies go very well, do they? No, because high schoolers in central Taiwan have decided the best place to party are car washes. Because you pay 10 NT, you get to play with foam, you can make a big mess, and then you clear it up. Easy peasy. So there you go. Would you play in a car wash? Self-cleaning. Ross. If I could get a free subsidized bus trip down to that car wash, I'll go. I think we just came up with our new company. Anybody else paying a car wash? Anyway, what happened was, though, unfortunately, while you think it's clean, these students, they decided to take eggs with them to the car wash. Mm. They threw the eggs around in the car wash, and instead of clearing up after themselves, they left all the mess in the car wash. And apparently the garage, which owned the car wash, had to throw them out. So literally the easiest place to clean in the world, and they chose to leave the mess there. Yeah, basically, yeah. And apparently the, the garage reported that customers were being scared away by the reveling students. <laughs> well, one would think that students throwing eggs, you know, would be, this would be a very sunny side of, of Taiwan, right? And of course, other car wash stories would have different connotations, wouldn't they? If I you think see what I mean. I think he did get it. I think he did get I it. I did get it, but I was going the other way, Ross. As in car wash stories... Students, wet T-shirts. No, we're getting it. We're, 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 Gavin. we're, we're getting there. Oh man, this this got into more dangerous territory than I was anticipating. Yeah. <laughs> oh dear. All right, that is it for the show today. We are uh, done. We're running away. Please do join us again next time. Time when this week broadcasts every Friday evening during the eight p.m. hour right here on ICR Team FM one hundred, around about eight fifteen p.m. 
Uh, you can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website on iTunes, a couple of other places as well. You know where to go. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Manconi, uh, joined as always by uh, Gavin Phipps, who uh, partied in his heyday in... That's none of your business, because that'd get me arrested, wouldn't it, eh? Anyway, good night. <laughs> good, conceivably. Uh, joined as well, of course, by Ross Feingold. Thank you, Ross. Good night. By Edward White. Thank you, Edward. Thank you. Good evening. And by Jason Nee. Thank you, Jason. Thank you. Good evening. Thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week.